Diplomacy is taking a beating between Canada and China. Will this relationship survive? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. The war of words between the two countries is ramping up as China accuses Canada of megaphone diplomacy, as Canada refuses to release Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou, while China continues to hold the two Michaels, Kovrig and Spavor on spying charges. Neither has been to court and both remain incarcerated, unlike Wanzhou, who is free on bail. There's been growing pressure on the federal government to be more forceful with China to get the Michaels home. A group of notable Canadians penned a letter to the prime minister to stop extradition for Wanzhou and a trade to get Kovrig and Spavor back to Canada. But in one of his most forceful declarations, Prime Minister Trudeau has rejected the idea outright, saying it would set a dangerous precedent. Coming up on this edition of the Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at the deteriorating relationship between the two countries and what could happen next. A recent national security review found Canada is an attractive and permissive target of China. CISA is investigated and reported on the possible threat, but there's been no response from the federal government. Joining us to discuss, Elliot Tepper. He's the Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. And, and Elliot, have relations between Canada and China ever been worse? No, I think this is uh, certainly since the recognition by Pierre Elliot Trudeau of China, and uh, that was a, a landmark moment. And now his son is dealing with today's China. No, this is clearly a uh, a pivotal point, an inflection point. Uh, this is a watershed moment in Chinese Canadian history. But also, I think emerging you know, quite clearly from this is that the new China under Xi Jinping is facing a reevaluation, not just by, by us, but by others. Is China the number one threat to Canada? That's what CISA says. <laughs> mm. That uh, I would hesitate to uh, rank order the threats to Canada. Clearly, as you know, there's many other threats. Uh, and where do you start? Cyber, pandemic, etc. But no doubt at all, the view of China has changed dramatically since the arrest of the two Michaels, uh, not only in Canada now, but in part because of our leadership role in multilateral institutions and our capacity to work with like-minded countries. Around the world, I think there's quite a major change in view about the role of China under the uh, current regime of uh, Xi Jinping. What, what, what changes have you seen in the role of, uh, of uh, the Chinese leadership? Well, the Chinese leadership has changed considerably since the consolidation under Xi Jinping from the era of Deng Xiaoping and his two, uh, the two who uh, followed him afterwards. The concept of peaceable rise and the notion that China did not want to upset the status quo but only wanted to be part of the status quo and help shape it, all of that has changed dramatically, particularly since uh, Xi Jinping had a party congress not long ago where he declared himself, <laughs> basically, uh, along with some other things, leader for life that Xi Jinping thought will now be in the Constitution and that he's the paramount leader. Uh, he has led China in a totally different international um, set of relationships and behavior that can only be called aggressive and truculent. From the Chinese view, this is a recovery period. They went through a long period of humility. You know, they, they were the center of the world, and, and, uh, and not only their own view, but uh, for a long period of time, they had some claims to be the civilization center of the world. Uh, 
the middle kingdom between heaven and earth. But then under Western imperialism and the long reign of of colonialism, China was subjected to humiliation and, and humiliating treaties, unequal treaties, and a number of other um, ways that diminished their importance. Under Xi Jinping's viewpoint now, this is a period of, of recovery and move toward global dominance, a return to what they consider uh, their rightful position in the world. How has China gained influence in Canada? Well, this is coming under uh, much more close scrutiny, scrutiny right now. Uh, of course, the primary way they've gained uh, influence is that we all go shop at stores that <laughs> that uh, have cheap products produced in China. And this was part of globalization. This was part of a good thing. China went from potentially a Maoist, truculent, backwater, uh, revanchist state to being a uh, a place that was producing all the goods that the world wanted. And this was globalization. And they lifted millions and millions out of poverty and became a, a, a totally different kind of country as a result. But the major change is because we have participated in their global rise economically, and now they want to translate that into a global rise politically. That's the major change. Elliot Tepper joining us on the Unpublished Cafe, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for Security Intelligence and Defense Studies at the Norman, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. And, you know, we talk about uh, influence in Canada. How does the United Front work? Yes, we were, I just was speaking now of the general rise of China and that our, our shopping behavior is a major contributor. But the uh, the rest of the two Michaels suddenly brought China into much sharper focus, not only by us, but as I said, but in part because of our leadership around the world. And everybody's paying attention now to the, to the mechanisms of overseas influence operations, which uh, primarily come under the United Front. Uh, heading. There's uh, several good books have come out recently and more and more studies showing that systematically China has tried to use influence operations to uh, gain the kinds of decision making that they feel they want inside a lot of countries, ours included. But beyond influencing that, they also want to um, have situations where perhaps the concept of democracy itself is becoming undermined. They present and this is overtly done, they present an alternative type of government uh, heading into the 2050 uh, time period in their own time horizon, showing that their system, the Communist Party system, is superior to democratic values, and the use of the United Front is one way to not only demonstrate the superiority, that is, by uh, creating dissension in our own countries, but by cultivating influence among key elites and, and using that influence to their advantage. How would you characterize China's actions globally over the last decade? Over the last decade is the time of the arrival of Xi Jinping and the new, the new type of international behavior that we've seen. China has gone from being a global partner in rising prosperity around the world helpful to all nations around the world now through their uh, Belt and Road Initiative. That is, you know, literally all roads, sea and and uh, land will lead to Beijing. And they were just being helpful fixers. Now we are reevaluating 
that kind of behavior and to seeing it as really a communist party rather than a Chinese effort uh, to influence the kind of world in which Canada uh, has to dwell, that is, resting on international rules of law, on basically civilizational behavior that's been developed institutionally in terms of all of our legal structures and, and behaviors. And China has not, is increasingly come into view now as a threat to that. Is the Canada-China relationship worth saving? Well, this is the dilemma we're in. China is already there. We can't say, you know, we have to prevent them from coming into existence. They are in existence. What we really want from China is to be the kind of country that, because we we're, this conversation is triggered by the uh, situation in Hong Kong, in 1997, the concept was that when Hong Kong was transferred back to China by, by Britain, by the United Kingdom, that the kind of democratic values represented in Hong Kong would spread into China, and that China then would become more of a kind of state, a normal, large power. Uh, the world was not going to be dominated by a single unipolar world for very long after 1989. That was unnatural, and China was a main contender to be in the constellation of powers. But now we see it as a different kind of uh, state. We We thought it was going to be a uh, more like us, <laughs> more like the normal behavior of states uh, that wish to play a, a partnership role, a constructive engagement role. Constructive engagement, in fact, of course, as we've seen, has gone the other way. Most dramatically now, with the rise of China being seen as uh, really the rise of a communist Chinese state and imposing its will on uh, the small enclave of Hong Kong. You know, in, in terms of uh, China um, dealing with the, the new national security law uh, that uh, obviously targets uh, protesters in Hong Kong, but, you know, far-reaching Article 38 in the security law targets those outside of China for being critical yes. of China. How how can they expect anyone to respect something like that? Well, good luck if you want to pass through the wonderful airport in Hong Kong. It's one of the world's great airports. <laughs> and... Uh, if you land there and they, they under their determinations, uh, thought that our conversation today was hostile to them, uh, we could be arrested. So it's a, it's a very vague, broad-reaching, uh, extraterritorial, extraterritorial grab of power. And we've seen that uh, in previous situations, such as the, uh, the islands in the South China Sea that they've been building up. Well, this is the, uh, the broader pattern. We for good reasons, pay very close attention to the fact that that uh, we have hostages there and we have a very severe situation. But we should see the situation of China behaving as they are toward us as a way that they are increasingly behaving toward the whole world. And that's what's coming into focus so that the uh, pattern of aggression, and now the term imperialism is coming back into play, that Chinese imperialism and truculence and aggression uh, is being seen not just bilaterally toward us and toward friendly countries such as Australia, but look at, uh, at it, how they're behaving all around them. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about the South China Sea. I used to teach <laughs> uh, courses on that. So uh, they've not only claimed ownership of basically the entire South China Sea, which is hotly contested and, and uh, under international law, probably not acceptable, but they've actually militarized these little islets. They've 
they've created ground in order to make facts, which is the opposite of the normal phrase. But they, they now have developed these little islets into islands, and now they've paved them over for holding, um, having capacity for, for bombers and jet planes. So the militarization, of, the militarization of the South China Sea has quietly gone on, uh, and, it, and it's going to be hard to reverse that. But also the East China Sea, they are behaving toward Japan in a very high-handed manner. They're uh, contesting ownership of, of some some barren islands there, but there's strategic for both China and Japan, but also toward China and India, as we've seen recently. And, and Indian soldiers have been killed in, in some numbers. All around China, they are expressing themselves in an aggressive expansionist fashion that has basically caught us by surprise because we thought China was going to be you know, a responsible stakeholding partner in a global um, political and economic world. Elliot, I want to thank you for joining us. Well, you're very welcome, Ed. And of course, uh, we should remember our, our particular situation. We not only have two hostages in jail, but there's a number of Canadians and Chinese Canadians that uh, are, are uh, of grave concern to us. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you, Elliot. You're very welcome. Elliot Tepper's a distinguished senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. While the Rebbin voice is rising to have Canada basically swap Meng Wanzhou for the two Michaels, the Prime Minister has dug in against the idea. Charles Burtonson, Associate Professor at Brock University, senior fellow with McDonald Laurier Institute, as well as the former counsel to the Canadian Embassy in China. And Charles, why are you against a swap? Well, I think that it's pretty clear that if we give in to China's hostage diplomacy, that it will embolden them to do more and to lose the respect for Canada as a country which, you know, is committed to the norms of, of diplomacy and trade. So if we give in to, to this, uh, when Huawei wants to get the when China wants to get the Huawei 5G installed in the Bell and TELUS networks, all they have to do is arrest a few engineers and uh, we do it again. Uh, presumably, how could we explain to the families of the, of the second raft of um, hostages that uh, we're not going to release them when we, when we were able to come through for Kovrigan's Favors family and, and uh, achieve their release by a unilateral um, um, surrender to China's outrageous demands and, and this really grotesque uh, tactic. The, the uh, Prime Minister says th this would set a precedent. Uh, I, I, am, I imagine you agree with something like that? Well, I mean, yeah, it's not like this is something which is, uh, you know, that we can work something out and, and say, okay, well, we'll give you Kovrigan's favor, but, uh, you know, we'll come up with an agreement whereby uh, you won't be doing this again, because it's absolutely clear under international law that taking people in as hostages without any due process of law, uh, without any evidence that they have committed any sort of crime, refusing to allow them access to legal defense, and, um, you know, not engaging in a in a an open and public uh, hearing that our diplomats could attend to ensure that due process of law has been extended is just completely beyond the pale because the the way the Chinese 
have put it is they claim that there is uh, lots of um, full and solid evidence against both Mr. Kovrig and Mr. Saver, but we'll never know what it is because they say it's a national security matter, which means there would be a half day hearing that we wouldn't be able to attend. And so when they're, you know, when they're convicted, uh, we wouldn't have any basis for appeal or to question it because they won't tell us uh, what it is they did. But you know, clearly, Kovrigan's favor are simply innocent victims of of this uh, attempt to pressure our government to release Meng Wanzhou before she goes to the United States and possibly um, gives the United States evidence of any relationship there may be between her company, Huawei, and Chinese uh, intelligence and uh, military agencies. Does the U.S. have a role to play here? Well, I think that certainly one would have expected that the U.S. would have been much more proactive in pressuring the Chinese government to release Kovrigan's favor. I mean, after all, they did not arrest uh, a, a U.S. diplomat on leave, and they did not uh, pick up a U.S. businessman. But um, you know, clearly, the only reason that we're being subjected to this nightmare is because of the U.S.'s determination to um, get Ms. Meng to face uh, serious charges of fraud in New York State. And therefore, one would hope that the U.S. government would take responsibility and do all they can to get Kovrigan's favor out of the appalling conditions that they're in and bring them back to safety in Canada. But we have no evidence that the U.S. has done more than simply make um, statements of support. But in terms of actually giving the Chinese government costs for holding two Canadians, uh, we haven't any evidence that the U.S. has done that. Charles Burton joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He's an associate professor at Brock University, senior fellow at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute, and former counsel to the Canadian Embassy in China. And we talked about the U.S. What about our allies? Do they have a role for us, or do do we owe them anything in this? Well, certainly, I think that the Chinese government is unhappy that they haven't been able to resolve this bilaterally. I think that you know, the day before Ms. Meng went to the BC Superior Court to hear the ruling by Justice Heather Holmes as to whether there was a basis for the extradition hearing to continue, um, she, with some of her um, friends, went the day before to the to the staircase of the BC Superior Court and uh, took uh, photographs of everybody flashing um, Um, victory signs and looking very happy. So I think they fully expected that this bilateral um, pressure would get Canada to give in. Now that this hasn't worked, and after 500 days, interest in Kovrigan's favor has not faded, and we're getting stronger and stronger support from our allies, including a very strong statement from U.S. Secretary of State Pompeo and statements from the British and, you know, all of the countries that are right-minded with regard to China, and China doesn't like this. They're in an embarrassing situation where other countries feel that, you know, if this can happen to Canada, maybe it could happen to us, and therefore we should stand together and and stop this sort of outrageous violation of the norms of international behavior uh, before it becomes China's um, sort of go-to move every time they, they're not able to get their way with a sovereign state. I wonder if, uh, you know, the current situation with Kovrig and Spavor might let other companies and in, in, in countries around the world take note that, you know, you can be arrested, you know, just because you're working in China for a North American company, you can just be arrested for anything and 
you know, that you become a hostage, basically a political hostage, do you not? Yes. I mean, I think, um, you know, people who are uh, working as teachers in China could be accused of espionage under the extremely broad definition that the Chinese government has offered. Uh, Certainly of the 500,000 or so uh, Canadians of Hong Kong origin, uh, nearly all of whom support democracy and freedom in Hong Kong, they would now have um, considerable risk in traveling back to Hong Kong to visit family or to go to China for for uh, personal or business purposes. And in general, I, I think a lot of Canadians who might be thinking of going to China to to do investment or, or to set up factories would really uh, give it a second thought because of the arbitrary nature of these arrests and the, the risk that this would incur to their, uh, to their employees. Which other countries have stood up to China in the past and, and what was the result? Well, we're seeing Australia has become much more proactive with regard to China. Australia um, last year put through a Foreign um, Influence uh, Transparency Scheme Act to try and address the Chinese regime's uh, subversion of Australian policymakers and attempts to intimidate uh, persons with relatives in China in Australia. And um, and Australia is also being quite aggressive with regard to China's uh, violations of human rights in the um, northwestern part of China, where the Turkic Muslims are being put into concentration camps, or uh, or Hong Kong, or with regard to Taiwan, or China's expansion into the South China Sea. And China has been responding by threatening uh, Australian trade, particularly in wine and uh, barley, um, similar to what they've done with us with regard to the canola seeds, and, and it looks like um, wood, and then also threatening to withdraw um, Chinese students from Australian universities where they're an absolutely critical um, financial support for those institutions and to restrict tourism from uh, China into Australia. So Australia seems to be prepared to accept the economic hit of unjustified Chinese retaliation in the interests of preserving uh, the larger question of the rules-based order. And I feel that you know, that's a principled stance that looks after the larger interest of Australia and that Canada should be looking very carefully at what Australia has been doing and uh, adopting similar policies to make it clear to the Chinese regime that if they don't deal with this in a fair and reciprocal way, in accordance with their commitment to international law, that we simply cannot uh, continue to, to attempt to negotiate, you know, enhance trade and investment agreements with them. What, what will it take to end this standoff? Well, you know, I think that uh, certainly if we put some uh, Chinese officials on our Magnitsky list, which um, would limit um, some senior members of the Chinese communist regime with large amounts of unexplained wealth uh, uh, invested here in Canada and prevent them from coming to Canada, that that would hit them in the pocketbook and in their personal lifestyles, as so many of these senior officials prefer to educate their children here and and keep their families here safe away from 
a corrupt and dangerous Chinese political environment. I think that we should, um, you know, do some trade retaliation. And one of the things that we could be doing would be to say, well, seeing as the Chinese government is not collaborating with us to stem the flow of fentanyl from factories in South China into our country, that we would start to inspect all Chinese shipments very uh, strictly, which would give them an economic disadvantage as their shipments would take longer to clear through customs. And I think we ought to crack down on agents of the Chinese state operating in Canada you know, even if they are engaged in intimidation and harassment of Chinese citizens in our country, such as students, anybody on the soil of Canada should enjoy the protections of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And we simply shouldn't put up with Chinese diplomats and others engaging in, in um, activities which are a violation of our laws and the guarantees of people in Canada to protection of their rights. Charles, thank you for joining us. It's very good to speak with you. Charles Burton's a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, as well as former counsel to the Canadian Embassy in China. Now it's time for you to weigh in with the unpublished.vote question. Should Canada agree to send Meng Wanzhou back to China for the safe return of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor? You can log on and vote right now and have your voice heard. I want to thank Elliot Tepper, senior fellow with the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and Charles Burton, former counsel to the Canadian Embassy in China. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.